All right, uh, we're going to go ahead and get started if you guys would like to at least get out in somewhat reasonable amount of time. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy. We are going to be finishing up chapter 1 today. And Calvin is right on cue, so. <laughs> so we'll be in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 18, uh, at least for the, the study tonight. And let me just open us with a brief word of prayer before we get into the text. Lord, uh, we thank you for this time to gather and to fellowship and to study your word, to consider it, uh, and Lord, to be evaluated by it and to be edified by it, uh, that we would be sanctified by your truth, your word speaking to us and to our hearts, uh, and that your spirit would accompany us in this effort, that we would not be standing alone as intellects coming to your word, but that we would be uh, recipients of the truth within it. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we will be just picking up right in verse 18, 1 Timothy chapter 1 this week, and we are going to be talking about naming names and what that all means and when to do it and why to do it. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So this text is admittedly pretty short, and there's a lot of information that's kind of collected in these verses. Uh, one of the things Paul's doing here is, as a letter writer, he's making reference to things that his audience would have understood in, in their context, and that we are largely dependent on the context of Paul's other writings and this letter in particular to unearth. But if you're, if you're receiving the letter of 1 Timothy in the first century AD and you get this, you know exactly what Paul is talking about when he refers to Hymenaeus and Alexander and their false teaching. You would know that right away. That would be like someone coming today and naming a current popular modern pastor. And they'd be like, oh, I know who he's talking about. I know generally what they believe or what they preach. It, it would be like that kind of thing that Paul's doing. But for us, we go, oh, he's talking about two people, and we don't know anything about them. Uh, well, at least not in the rest of First Timothy. He just kind of makes reference to them. And the thing that he describes them doing in this letter is, you'll see there, making shipwreck of their faith. And then he says that in response to them making shipwreck of their faith, he handed them over to Satan. So these teachings are among some of the, some of the ones where the most strange doctrine comes out of the text of scripture. Uh, some people would build whole systems of theology on what it means to make shipwreck of one's faith, uh, equating this to something like losing salvation. Uh, and the handing over to Satan, some people would say that this is, uh, this is something that causally happens or the person is given over to be possessed by Satan or things like that. All kinds of strange readings come out of this text. But in the spirit of good exegesis and, and frankly good Bible reading, we're just gonna try to take it in context, see what the rest of scripture has to say about it, and then try to understand what this means for us as we go out the door tonight and into our lives throughout the rest of our week. Uh, I said in a moment, or I said at the beginning, we're going to be talking about what it means to name names. So that's kind of where we're headed. But as a, as a precursor to that, we need to see what Paul's argument is for why he gets to the conclusion of naming Hymenaeus and Alexander in, in the course of his letter. So the first thing he does in verse 18 is he reminds us that this is not something that is entrusted to every single person within the church. He's charging this specifically to Timothy within the church. 
So he says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding the faith and a good conscience. So he's talking specifically to Timothy in this text. And while we've noticed in the whole letter of 1 Timothy, he makes, general, he makes specific reference to Timothy's duty, uh, we, would be, uh, we, would, we have to go through the paces of first asking the question, what does it mean for Timothy to apply this? And then how does that apply to, let's say, us today in the modern church? Okay? So Timothy, remember, is being instituted in somewhat of an elder or a pastor position within his church context. He, he is the direct, let's say, heir of Paul in the church. He's being appointed as an elder within the church. And Paul's giving him specific tasks that he has to carry out. Paul is not writing to the church in Ephesus, which is where Timothy would be pastoring, and telling them they need to be the ones who name names. He's, he's charging Timothy specifically with the responsibility of guarding teaching and guarding doctrine. Now, we see this exercise in the church today when uh, a church doesn't expect its average attender or member to show up on Sunday and be able to tell the church and preach to the church about who's a false teacher and who's a true teacher and guard theology. What the church does is they say, what we're going to do is we're going to sift out who is gifted for this by the Holy Spirit, and then we're going to appoint them and charge them with the responsibility of sound doctrine or sound teaching and guarding the church from that. We would typically refer to those as pastors or teachers within the church. Those are the people who the church appoints to actually guard the theology of the church. That is not to say that members individually aren't responsible for knowing good and bad theology, but it's just not the spiritual burden of a member to be able to do that at the same level or at the same level of responsibility that a pastor or an elder might have to do that at. So, so it's, it's important for you to know that because what you can unfortunately, I think, walk away with in 1 Timothy, especially if you're a, a learner, a student of scripture, you can walk away with this incredible burden thinking that on top of your job and the people you're discipling and the books that you're reading, that you also have to be able to know everything about everything in order to somehow be able to refute a false teaching that comes your way. That is not the spiritual responsibility of a member within the church. There are people in the church who have been given that task. They're called pastors and elders. And everyone else, I, I'm going to argue in a moment, should be a specialist in the areas that are relevant to their ministry context. But only the pastor and the teacher is the one who's burdened to know, let's say, everything about everything when it comes to false teaching. And even them uh, in, in somewhat of a hierarchy fashion. We'll talk about that uh, in a moment as well. So Paul charges Timothy with this task to guard teaching. And he makes a reference to something, uh, an event that happened, the prophecies which have been previously made. You can put a pin in that. When we get to 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to see that unfolded more. Basically, the prophecies is a quick shorthand reference for Paul to refer to Timothy's ordination. When Timothy is ordained by the church, uh, the elders lay hands on him, they pray over him, and this is, Paul refers to it as being uh, the prophecies which are true about Timothy, meaning the church has spiritually discerned Timothy is a pastor. He's gifted to be so, and so they institute him as one. So Paul says, Timothy, I charge you to do this because... You were ordained. You were, you were put up to the task. This is your job. This is your duty. You think about the duties of a pastor. I've made reference to this before. When you think about the duties of a pastor in, in the Western church, sometimes you think about someone who's charismatic, uh, someone who's a good personality. Uh, Paul says at the end of the day, a pastor has to be the kind of person who guards sound doctrine within the life of the church. And churches that are healthy will have pastors who do that kind of thing. Uh, just to make a, a reference to the, someone who many of you may know, uh, Forrest Brown, who's, who's a mentor of mine, and many of you are friends with him as well, um, he is, he's not, let's say, the most charismatic, gifted speaker or orator within the life of the church. But he guards sound teaching. This is the job of a pastor. And in guarding sound teaching, he's actually being faithful to the task which God has given to him. 
Similarly with, with pastors in general, this is, this is the job, this is the burden. So uh, Timothy is charged with this, and it's, it's in re- record to his ordination. And then he says, in doing this, Timothy is waging war. Uh, he's, he's waging a kind of warfare campaign. Uh, the way that Paul says it here is that you may wage the good warfare. Uh, it's just a play on two words, so you may fight the good fight. Uh, you may wage the good campaign. Wh- whatever you want to think about this as, he's, he's telling him, you need, you need to not only fight the individual battles, but let's say the, the campaign level scope of fighting against false teaching, Timothy has to engage in both fronts, the individual fights and the long-term, let's say, campaign or war against this kind of false teaching. So he's exhorting him on two levels, both for momentary uh, vigor and also for career-wide longevity in this. And the goal of this is, is kind of the same thing that he's, he's told in the past as well. It's, it's for a good faith and a good conscience, right? Holding fast to faith, and holding fast to a good conscience. This is the purpose of good teaching in the church. It builds up the faith of the Christian, and it, and it edifies them. And when he says good conscience, we're talking about if the Holy Spirit is working in someone, uh, what Timothy is guarding is that kind of sensitivity, that kind of Holy Spirit-centered uh, conscience, that you have a good conscience. You can recognize sin. You can recognize good teaching. You can worship God appropriately. That kind of thing is what he's, he's stewarding. And then Paul's going to turn, and he's going to say, but there are some who have rejected this, making shipwreck of their faith, among whom, and then he's going to name two names, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they would learn not to blaspheme. So what, what Alexander and Hymenaeus have done uh, by making shipwreck of their faith, I think is assisted by verse 20, where we see that he, the goal of him handing them over to Satan is so that they wouldn't blaspheme. So Alexander and Hymenaeus making shipwreck of their faith, in one sense, is them committing blasphemy. You see, you see that? So Paul says the reason he gives them over to Satan is so that they wouldn't blaspheme. And he says the reason he gave them over to Satan is because they had made shipwreck of their faith. So if, they, if the handing over to Satan does its job, they would learn not to blaspheme. Therefore, let's say, unmaking the shipwreck of their faith. They rebuild it or reconstitute it, if you will. So making shipwreck of one's faith is not something you do to lose salvation. Making shipwreck of one's faith is, I might say, a consistent campaign of blasphemy against God. Now, this sin has been named already in Paul's list of sins. Uh, he names those who are blasphemers uh, in, in verse 9. And so this is, this is Paul's kind of general teaching uh, that false teaching in the church is blasphemy against God. And specifically, Hymenaeus and Alexander have engaged in false teaching at the level where they have blasphemed, and they blasphemed in an unrepentant way so that Paul has handed them over to Satan. Now, what specifically Hymenaeus and Alexander have done uh, becomes more clear in the rest of Paul's writing, specifically in 2 Timothy. We're going to dive more specifically into their false teachings when we get there in 2 Timothy. But just so you have reference for it, uh, 2 Timothy, uh, which is just literally a couple pages over, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 17, we see Hymenaeus is mentioned again. And in, thi- and in this context, Hymenaeus, we're told, Verse 17, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus, you'll recognize that name, and Philetus, different guy, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. So what Hymenaeus is teaching is that the resurrection has already taken place. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. And so we'll talk more about Hymenaeus' specific false teaching when we get there. And then uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, let me make sure I have this reference right, um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, you see a, a man named Alexander who's mentioned. 
goodness. Uh, and he's, he's referred to as Alexander the coppersmith. And I'm looking for the reference now, and my notes are wrong. So uh, you'll have to trust me that Alexander the coppersmith is mentioned in, in 2 Timothy. Uh, and Paul says at that point, Alexander the coppersmith is a person who's done me great harm. So these two people are likely mentioned again in the letter of 2 Timothy. And so we'll, ta- we'll talk more about their false teachings when we get there in 2 Timothy. Uh, but suffice it to say, for now, we're, because Paul doesn't name their specific false teaching aside from blasphemy, uh, we're not going to try to delve into their false teaching until we get there in the later pastoral epistles. So what we are going to do, though, is talk about this principle that Paul is telling us, that sound doctrine ought to be guarded, and then he gives us a model of how sound doctrine is to be guarded, and he concludes with the naming of some names. So Paul's, Paul's basic argument, the flow of thought in these couple of verses, is that truth does matter, truth matters, and so the church must protect that truth, that sound teaching. Okay, so truth matters. It's the church's job to steward that sound teaching. Maybe more narrowly, it is the pastor's and elder's job within the church to steward the church's stewardship of the sound teaching. Okay? So how do you steward sound teaching? Well, Paul's made a case throughout uh, the first chapter about how that stewardship is done. The first one, he would say, we would say, is by sound, hearty exposition of Scripture. Remember, Paul says... The kind of false teaching he's talking against is this vain speculation, myths, kind of endless ruminations on things that don't build up the saints. So sound teaching is that which actually robustly edifies and builds up the church. Uh, one of the ways that you actually deal with false teaching is actually by having people so saturated in sound doctrine that false teaching just smells off to them. If you have Christians who don't know what good teaching is like, it's a lot harder for them to recognize what false teaching is like. So in some sense, one of the best ways for the church to inoculate its members against bad theology, bad, bad doctrine, bad practice, is simply by showing them exactly what the Bible does command and what the Bible does call for. So the bread and butter of the church is good, sound doctrine, good, sound teaching. Every healthy church should build up its members in the word, in knowledge of the word. Uh, many churches today would say that the best way to do that is by just going through scripture in sermons, in Bible studies, in in all kinds of teaching that the church does to make people know God's word better. But let's say you're a member of a church. How do you, let's say, feed on that or tap into that most appropriately? One of the best ways to do that is, one, by going to a church that does that kind of thing. And then we might say, secondly, also going to the gatherings that that church has. So if the church has worship services where it's regularly expositing scripture, a member who is, let's say, attached to a church or knows of a church that does that but doesn't regularly attend well, that would be not to tap into the resources that the church is making available. So let's say regularly attending and learning from the sound exposition of the word is one, is one way to do it. The second way is to read and be saturated in scripture yourself. One of the things that I think is very appropriate, a great move in the Western church, is the pressure and expectation that people ought to read God's word for themselves. That is a move that I think has been amazingly positive for the church. And I think it's something that, especially when coupled with sound teaching being modeled, the reading of scripture is uh, kind of hand in glove with that, that kind of thing. And then uh, the third thing that a member of the church ought to do is to war against their own personal sin, the sin that is evident to their own heart and to their own life. Because let's say you know better theology, but sin still has a hold on your heart. It will cloud your judgment. It will cloud your decision making. And it will turn your bad theology into a powerful tool which it will be wrongly wielded against others or even to justify the sin which you are committing. So to wage war against sin is part of the process of sitting under good, sound teaching and theology. That to wage war against sin in your own heart inoculates you to bad teaching that's out there in the world. 
because all that false teaching does is it either justifies or it normalizes or it promotes sinful behavior. That's one of the dangers of false teaching. And so if you're dealing with sin in your own heart and you know what it looks like and you know how to fight it, it's easier to smell it when someone comes saying, no, 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 that's okay. Secondly, so the church should, should guard people by engaging in good sound exposition, but also by engaging with the false ideas themselves. Now, the culture, in some sense, is going to set the agenda for which false teachings get talked about most. If I was to ask you the question, what are the false teachings that the culture is promoting and thus that the church should be addressing, you likely wouldn't say Arianism is top of the list because very few people are promoting Arianism in the broader culture. And the church, in response, doesn't really address Arianism all that often. It should uh, because it's going to be teaching scripture soundly but not as frequently as it might, let's say, address homosexuality or as it might address, address any kind of sexual issues because the culture is uh, wheels on fire going head over heels for a sexual revolution and thus putting pressure on the church to figure it out. And so the church, if it's going to be rightly engaging with culture, will be dealing with these issues as well. So in some sense, the culture does set the agenda there, but because if you're a church that's, let's say, rooted on the word, the culture's not only setting the agenda where every Sunday it's whatever the news was last week is what you're talking about that Sunday. That would, I think, be a distortion in the opposite direction. So you deal with false teaching as appropriate, but let's say the root and bone, the bread and butter, is going to be sound exposition. Now, what does that mean for you as a member of a church? I mentioned you shouldn't be an expert in everything that the culture is dealing with out there. You really should just be a specialist in certain things, things that, let's say, are in your own orbit of ministry or discipleship. So suppose you are a nurse and you work in a hospital and there are certain kinds of things that your coworkers constantly bring up as refutations against scripture or concerns about Christianity or even worldview ideas that you think are dangerous. Learn those things. Learn the kinds of things that come up with the people you work with and talk to and that you rub shoulders with. Don't become an expert in some kind of eschatology if you don't actually know how to minister to the people who you walk into and talk to every single day. The danger here is that you feel this burden to learn everything about everything that is important. Uh, and I think that's a real danger because you cannot be, frankly, with the amount of time that you would have if you're being faithful in your job and faithful with your family. You simply couldn't be an expert in everything. And even pastors, who I'm going to argue should be the best experts in as many things as possible, can't be experts in everything. I trust my seminary professors. And I trust people who write books on topics that I'm not a PhD in to have faithfully done the work to guard and defend the truth so that I can reap from their ministries as well. I don't feel the pressure to go get a PhD in every single category that might come up in the life of the church simply because I don't have time for it. And so I specialize in the things that I can, uh, but even a pastor cannot be a specialist in everything. So I don't think members should feel pressured to be specialists in everything. Learn what you can, but don't obsess at this moment in time. Uh, and, and one of the dangers that members might face, especially when learning good theology or new theology, one of the dangers is you will become an obsessor over theology at the cost of your own personal study and growth in the word, where you become so grown into the controversy of the day that you, in an unhealthy way, learn how to refute false teaching, almost to the point where you just become a good debater, and, you not, and that comes at the cost of loving people well. So, and then, and then this is going to dovetail into... What do we do when we name names? How, when is it appropriate to call someone out or name a name when you're talking about false teaching? So Paul's flow of thought, church teaches soundly. In teaching soundly, it will engage with false ideas. And then the last step is if the church is engaging with false ideas, 
And false ideas, let's say, particularly assail a local church or a local body, that local church, when dealing with those false ideas, will name names of the people who most propagate those false ideas. This does not mean that the church should name every single name out there of someone who's ever said something in error in the world. Okay? There are ministries out there called discernment ministries. Uh, I, I would strongly encourage you to avoid that kind of thing because it really breeds a kind of controversy and a, a real headline-seeking kind of behavior. That is not healthy, I think, for a Christian. It, it doesn't really give you a spirit of generosity or charity. But naming names is appropriate. So we need to avoid the twofold danger. One is to want to name names, to crave that kind of controversy. And the other would be to ne never want to name names because you don't want to be judgmental over someone else. You want to avoid both of those dangers. And given your own temperament and your own disposition, you might have a tendency one way or the other. You might want to name names. You might crave that kind of thing. I would warn you against that. And similarly, you might never want to engage with a naming of a name because you feel like it's judgmental. I also warn you against that because Paul clearly tells us here, in some cases, it is appropriate to name names. So when are those cases and what does that look like? Well, I'm going to go a little bit off script here from what Paul's saying and give you a little bit of a framework for what I think is appropriate for the naming of names. So uh, we've talked about this before, the idea of secondary, tertiary, and primary ideas. So uh, I'm just laying it out a different kind of way. Uh, in some sense, the church will have core commitments, things that it must believe in order to be a Christian church. The church will have uh, commitments, which are not core, but commitments that the church holds valuable or dear to itself. Those kinds of commitments would be things, let's say, like a doctrine on uh, scripture and, and what purpose of scripture serve, how do you interpret it? Something like covenantal or dispensational theology would fit into that framework. Uh, people who have different commitments from the church that you belong to are still brothers and sisters in Christ because you should share the core commitments. But these are, these are things that Christians should have spirited conversations about but are not in the realm of heresy. Okay? Commitments are just different Christian beliefs. And then there's something in the realm of convictions which uh, we might think about as biblically informed opinions that a Christian would form over the course of their lifetime. Okay? Most often, when I observe people naming names, naming names happens at the conviction level. If you find someone, let's say, out in the sphere of Twitter or YouTube or something like that, most of the time false teaching is being engaged with. It's being engaged at this level where the person names someone who holds a different conviction from them and then proceeds to engage with it as like the sole purpose in their life for the next couple weeks. This is the most inappropriate time, I would say, a, a no-go for naming of names. Because difference of convictions is there if you're going to allow for difference of reading and understanding and study of Scripture. The difference of convictions is going to happen by different people and personalities. Christians need to learn how to tolerate these differences and engage with them well. But I don't think naming names is appropriate at this level. Commitment, it might be appropriate at certain points in time for you to engage with false teaching at the commitment level. Because what happens at the commitment level, something like, let's say, the inerrancy of scripture, people begin to get loose on that at the commitment level. And I think before that becomes a core issue, like Jesus is not the son of God, a pastor might be wise to engage with a false teaching that's persisting here at the interpretation of scripture before it affects a core doctrine. So sometimes, but I would say not always. And then core theology, stuff that all Christians believe in order to be Christians, those are the kinds of false teachings that if they're prevalent in the church, names must be named. Uh, a pastor wouldn't be being faithful if they didn't name names if a core issue is under assault. So if someone, let's say, uh, for example, someone was present in our church, in our membership, and they were actively propagating the idea that Jesus was not the Son of God and did not even need to be the Son of God to, uh, for Scripture to be true about him. Well, then, uh, if, if a pastor or an elder doesn't pull that person aside and rebuke them, 
lovingly at first, and then maybe if they persist in it in a more open kind of way, that would be a pastor who's being unfaithful. That's the kind of thing Paul's saying here. We're going to talk about Hymenaeus and Alexander in a moment, uh, or in a couple weeks. I, sh- I should say a couple months uh, when we get there. Um, but their false teaching do- is not a convictional opinion thing. It's not a commitment thing. It's a core theology thing. They challenge whether Christ is coming back in a bodily resurrection. And Alexander the coppersmith uh, seems to promote uh, the use of idols in, in the church. So both of those people are striking at the core of Christian theology. Thus, Paul names names. This is not a free license for Christians to just go on a campaign against whatever people they just don't agree with out in the world. Okay? So maybe a, a good way to think about this is we as Christians should neither crave controversy nor should we fear controversy. We should not desire controversial kind of takes, controversial conversations, and we should also not avoid those kinds of conversations. Christians should be able to think through these kinds of things, I think, appropriately. And maybe one more note before we go into discussion. Depending on your temperament, and I sense our church's temperament, the tendency is going to be to take convictions and make them commitments and take commitments and make them core. That's the danger in more, let's say, reformed or biblically informed communities. The, the more conservative biblically you are, the more your tendency is to go from con- to take a conviction and want to bleed this over into a commitment and take commitments and bleed them over into core issues. And if you're, uh, let's say, more liberal in your thinking, the tendency is to take a core issue and make it a commitment and take a commitment and make it a conviction that's just kind of existing out there in the world. The, the point is you have to know your tendencies and you have to know the tendencies of, let's say, even your church body and pastors should know the tendencies of their people as well. But just be aware of that kind of tendency to bleed because sometimes someone's really talking about a conviction issue, but they're talking about it like it's a commitment that the church must hold to. Or other times someone's talking about a commitment with another Christian and they're kind of making it sound like you can't be a Christian unless you believe this kind of thing as well. That's a danger within certain groups of, of Christians. But the naming of names, uh, maybe should, uh, to summarize this, should be rare, infrequent, and selective and targeted to whatever false teaching is affecting the actual church that someone's a part of. The goal is not to deal with every false teaching that exists in the Western world or every false teaching that exists in, in the church at large. The goal is to deal with the false teaching that exists in your own backyard. Okay? You need to first deal with that before a pastor should, let's say, even consider writing a book on, on something else. Uh, but unfortunately, I think the tendency of the, the pastors in today's church is to either pursue controversy and thus go for anything that disagrees with them, or, or to be totally silent, never dealing with, with controversy, and thus really breeding a kind of unhealthy doctrine in their church and in their life. And really, they do it at the expense of their people. They do it at the expense of their people's theology and their people's understanding of, of God's word. So with that, we're going to go into some time of discussion where we'll hash these ideas out by actually naming some names and talking through some of that. But for now, let me just close us in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, it is certainly a blessing to us to sharpen our minds and focus our hearts. We pray that we would consider it well now and even apply it to our lives well. We pray this all in your name. Amen.